Let's pray together as we come again to God's Word. Our Father, everything that we have just sung, we pray to You that You would be with us as we come to Your Holy Word, that You would overcome the darkness of our minds and our understanding, that You would illuminate Your truth to us, that we would understand not only what it means, but Father, that we would have confidence in Your goodness towards us and Your love towards us, and that in that confidence, Father, we would love You And that in that love for you that is engendered in our hearts by your love for us and by your Holy Spirit, that we would follow you, that we would trust you, that we would obey you, that we would grow in you. And so, Father, be with us. May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me ask you a question this morning as we continue on in our study of the book of Hosea and as we focus in together here this morning on chapter 3. When you read the opening chapters of this book, which we've studied last week and now again this week, when you hear this story of the life that God called Hosea to, right? This, this life of marrying a harlot, a prostitute, and having children with her, two of whom weren't even his own biological children, but were the product of her harlotry, her unfaithfulness, her her immorality, her sin. When you interact with this story, which is a, a living parable that God had Hosea's family become, do you identify mostly with Hosea? with this poor prophet of God who had to go through all of this pain, all of this disappointment, all of this betrayal that Hosea had to endure. I mean, on the one hand, of course, course we identify, right, with him. I mean, what an unimaginably difficult and painful, agonizing ordeal this guy was asked to endure. And it's easy for us to empathize with him, isn't it? It's easy for us to, to say to ourselves, man, I would never ever want to walk in Hosea's shoes and then maybe try to extrapolate some, some application for ourselves about the times when we have to go through hard things Poor us, right? Well, here's the thing. And I would remind you again of the last verse in this book, which we looked at last week, where God says to us, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things, and whoever is discerning, let him know them, which means that the message of the book of Hosea isn't just right directed towards the, the original audience, which was the sinful nation of Israel in the 8th century B.C., But this prophecy was breathed out by God the Holy Spirit for all of us to profit from. And the thing is that the message for us in the book of Hosea isn't really that we should identify with poor Hosea first and foremost who went through this painful circumstance. It's that we should identify with Gomer, the unfaithful one. In the living parable that Hosea's marriage and and family is, Hosea is not playing the part of you and I. He's playing the part of God. And Gomer is playing the part of sinful Israel, gone astray from the holy faithful God and then brought back by His great unconditional love, as we'll see today. 
And unfaithful Gomer in Israel, that's to be a revelation to us of the reality that in our natural spiritual condition, in our sinfulness, we stand in no less need of this same unfathomable love of God than they do. Some Christians, I think, don't quite grasp that reality. They have trouble seeing themselves as being as desperately unfaithful to God as Israel was or as Gomer was to Hosea, as deeply idolatrous as the nation had been to their God. And then on the other side, I think that I know that there are other Christians who, who grasp that reality and, and they get it intimately. They're deeply aware of their sin. They're, they're, they're greatly troubled by their sin. And the difficulty that they have is in accepting the fact that the holy God of creation could actually love a sinner such as them. And so the words of songs like, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die, they resonate deeply with Christians like that. Would He devote that sacred head to such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity. Grace unknown and love beyond degree. Well, see, the reality is that the only reason why we sometimes struggle to see ourselves as as desperately sinful, no less than Gomer, no less than idolatrous Israel. The only reason that we struggle to, to identify with them is because of the pride and the arrogance of our own sinful hearts that thinks too little of God's holiness and too highly of ourselves. And so the book of Hosea is for both. People who struggle to comprehend the reality and the weightiness and the severity of their sin, and people who struggle to acknowledge the reality of just how amazing God's great love actually is. Hosea is supposed to tune our hearts into both of those realities. Chiefly the reality that God would devote Himself to loving wretched sinners just like we all are. So last week we dove into the first two chapters of Hosea and we saw the seriousness of sin and we saw God's response to it illustrated by Hosea's marriage and family, by his wife, by his children, by the names of of these children. And what that taught us is that God absolutely hates Sin. And at the same time, our God is a God of great love who purposes to redeem His people and to cleanse them of their sin in His great love. To allure them, to draw them unto Himself by His divine, unconditional love towards them. And of course, we saw... How all of that that's revealed through Hosea's marriage to Gomer is pointing to what God will do for national Israel in the Old Testament, but also especially it's pointing ahead to Christ Jesus and all that He has done as the incarnate God to wash us and to cleanse us 
of all our transgression and to, to give us new hearts and new life and to faithfully fulfill all of the promises that God made all the way back to Abraham through faith in Him, through faith in Christ. So today, in chapter 3, the parable portion of the book of Hosea comes to a conclusion. This, this parable of Hosea's life and marriage and family draws to an end in an absolutely astounding way. And in it, we have to see both the terrible depth of our own sinfulness and we have to see, to use Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 3, we have to see what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the great love of Jesus Christ that surpasses all knowledge by which he has made us his own children. So, let's look at these five verses here today. Just these five verses of Hosea chapter 3, as God reveals his love to us, which is a redeeming love, and it is a refining love, and when we put it all together, we see that it is a relentless love. First, verses 1 and 2. The love of God is a redeeming love. And the Lord said to me, this is Hosea now talking in the first person, the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. So the picture that is now painted for us here in chapter 3 is not just, is not simply that somehow... In spite of Gomer's unfaithfulness, in spite of her immorality or prostitution, her harlotry, her, her grotesque sin, that somehow Hosea has still found it in his heart to love her and has, has come then to understand that God's love is somehow like his love for his wife. That would be remarkable enough. But this story goes beyond that and in fact it works the other way around. What's happening here is that the love that God had, unfathomable love towards sinful, idolatrous Israel, the divine love that we saw expressed at the end of chapter 1 last week, where, where the children had been named things like, no pity, no mercy, and not my people. And then God said, there's going to come a day where in that place where it was said to them, you're not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Right? That completely unexpected love of God towards Israel that was, that was unprovoked by anything that they did to earn it or to, or to kindle it in Him. This divine love that has no comparison, no analog anywhere in this world God had towards Israel. And as he did, it infected Hosea's heart. And it kindled in Hosea a real and a genuine and an undeserved and an unconditional love for his adulterous, unfaithful, unclean wife. 
and it gave Hosea a pattern to follow. See, it wasn't that his wife Gomer, while she was married to Hosea and conceiving children apart from him in her harlotry, that at some point she looked back over her, over her shoulder at, at poor Hosea, who she'd forsaken and been unfaithful to, and felt bad for what she'd done and felt sympathy and pity for him and came crawling back to him, asking him to take her back in. That's not what happened. That had not happened. It was not anything that Gomer had done to warm Hosea's heart back to her that caused him to love her. Just like Israel had done precisely nothing to move God's heart to love them, to kindle in any way, shape, or form a love for them in God's heart. God's heart is unmovable for one thing. No creature, nothing outside of God can cause anything in God, can, can move God in a certain direction, can it? God is what He is. And what He is is love. And His love towards Israel was entirely in spite of everything that they had done in their sin and, and the fact that they had done nothing Precisely nothing to endear themselves to him again. They were not lovely to him, and yet he loved them. It was unconditional love entirely that God showed to Israel and then asked and required Hosea to show to Gomer. And it was that kind of divine love that, again, God is now commanding Hosea to express towards his wife. Now, in our culture, the concept of love in this modern Western world, the concept of love is normally thought of as, as a feeling first, foremost, which then leads to various actions. And that leads to all kinds of problems, in fact, because people who love that way on the basis of their feelings first, right? Saying, well, I, I didn't love this person. I didn't do something for this person. I wasn't able to. I'm not able to because the feeling's not there. My heart's just not in it. People who love that way on the basis of their feelings first, first of all, are loving selfishly in order to satisfy their own feelings. And they're waiting to express love to someone else until they feel like it, which means very often it doesn't happen. We see people doing this in, in human relationships all the time, feeling like they can't possibly do loving things for someone else until they feel good about whatever loving things would bless the other person. And so friendships suffer because of that. Marriages suffer because of that. Children suffer because of that because people are waiting to express love until they feel like it. Loving acts aren't being motivated by the objective truth and love of God, but by the subjective feelings of the individual. And, and as you know, as well as I know, feelings come and go. Feelings shift like shadows and like the wind. But God's love, see, is the opposite of that. 
God's love is motivated by God's unchanging, unshifting nature. God's love, which gives a pattern for the way we are to love, is biblically primarily, first and foremost, not a feeling but an action. It's a verb, not a feeling, not, and, 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 it's, and it's action that's not conditioned on feelings. And so God is calling Hosea to love Gomer, even though he most certainly does not feel like it. Because she's not lovely to him, see? She's repulsive to him. Just like Israel was not lovely to God when God said, I will have mercy on her who is called no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Remember that verse? You see the order in that verse? In the last verse of chapter 2 from last week? It wasn't that the people returned to God and then He had mercy on them because they returned to Him. He said to them, in the depths of their spiritual harlotry, in spite of the sin and idolatry that had alienated from them from Him, He said to them, yet you are My people. And it was that divine love, unconditioned by anything that they did to earn it or to kindle it in Him somehow, that would then cause them to say in response, You are my God. Loving Him who first loved them. And so this is how, this is how now God is commanding Hosea to go and love Gomer. She's not with him even. Go get her. She's, she's off living the life of a harlot. Go get her and love her in this way, God says. As a picture, again, defined by the pattern of God's own divine love. Go love a woman who's loved by another man. She's off there with him now. Go get her. Go love her who is currently present tense and adulterous. Go, go get her. Because only in that way will the true love of God be shown. Because that's what he does. That's what he did with Israel. That's what he did with us. We were the sheep who went astray after our own way, and He was the one who came and found us. We weren't even seeking Him, Isaiah says, when He said, Here I am. Here I am. We were blind, but now we see. We were lost, but now we're found. This is how God loves. This is how He was loving Israel, not because they were lovely to Him. In their sin, they were loathsome to Him. He didn't love them because they had first turned back to Him. It worked the other way around. They would turn back to Him because He had loved them while they were yet sinners, even as we saw Paul proclaiming in Romans chapter 5. They were enemies of God. They were dead in their sins and trespasses. They were unable to do anything else but sin, and yet He loved them. And in that love turned their hearts back to Him. Go love a woman who is loved by another man, who is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn, currently, present tense, still, they turn to other gods and they love 
cakes of raisins. That's kind of a funny pairing, right? Other gods and raisin cakes. Let's see what that means. The first one is obvious. Israel was notorious for their idolatry, for violating God's law in the second commandment and and worshiping other gods that had been fashioned out of wood and stone. False gods, pagan gods, gods of fallen, wicked, sinful people's imaginations who suppress the truth of God and choose to worship the creation instead of the Creator. And very, very often what the pagan nations did was, was they imagined and they invented all kinds, pantheons of false deities that they would pray to, that they would venerate, that they would bow down to, that they would make sacrifices to. Because they imagined that these these deities would be able to meet the various needs that the people had in their lives. They needed the sun to shine. They needed the rain to fall so that their crops would grow. So they they invented and prayed to and venerated and worshipped false gods of the sun, false gods of the weather. They needed their crops to grow. They needed livestock to multiply. They needed their own offspring to multiply. And so they, they invented and prayed to and paid homage to false gods of fertility. They had false gods for everything. Again, because Paul explains in Romans chapter 1, they refused to honor the one true God. They suppressed His truth and and exchanged it for lies. They chose to worship the creation instead of the Creator. And so they made gods in their own image instead of worshiping the one true God who had made them in His. Well, here in verse 4, Hosea talks about all of that, and he talks about household gods at the end of the verse. Teraphim in the, in the Hebrew, those were little statues of false deities that people would make shrines to in their homes because they imagined that if they honored these little teraphim, these little household gods, that those gods would, would, would provide protection for their households and their livelihoods and their families. All the while, see, while they're, while they're doing that, they're turning their backs on the true God. They're not trusting Him as the living God to be able to provide for them in spite of everything that He had done for them so obviously. But putting their confidence and anchoring their hopes in this world to gods that didn't even exist, that's what they were doing. Idols that the pagan nations around them made up and and carved images of. And very often, Israel would end up venerating and worshiping the gods of these other nations as a a part of their effort to, to forge political alliances and economic alliances with those other nations. Again, not trusting God to protect them from their outside enemies but taking matters into their own hands and forging these alliances by by accepting the idolatry of those pagan nations in order to gain some earthly provision from them. So again, putting their confidence in other things than God, compromising their beliefs, their values, their devotion to their God in order to get for themselves whatever they wanted in life and wouldn't trust God for. That's what this idolatry was that Israel was so guilty of. And see, this is why God uses Gomer as a, as a picture of Israel's going after other gods. She's not, 
they're, they're not just like worldly and, and going and, and indulging in whatever cultural expressions there are out there, right? Gomer's not just promiscuous, right? She was a, she was a prostitute. She wasn't just sexually impure. She was profiting from her immorality and her debauchery. And that's what Israel was doing in chasing after idols. They were looking to profit. They were looking to gain for themselves. They were looking to get more for themselves than what they thought the living God would give them because they didn't trust Him. And don't think for a second that this kind of thing was unique to Israel. Don't think for a second that this kind of thing was unique to ancient pagan societies, but now in our modern enlightened world, we don't do this kind of thing anymore, right? I mean, yeah, they, they actually carved little statues and big statues and idols to represent these false gods that they put their hopes in, that they trusted instead of the true God, that they looked to, that they, that they even made sacrifices to in, in, in order to gain some profit from these false gods. Whether, whether the prophet was rainfall or harvests growing or fertility or political peace. But see, even if we don't carve the statues, it's the same thing, isn't it? Looking to things in the creation, looking to things in our imagination, looking to things other than Him in order to secure our peace, our happiness, our security in this world. This is what the world does. This is what sinful people do, whether or not they carve actual idols out of wood or stone. We want what we want in our sin. And we put our hope and our confidence and we give our devotion to anything other than the living God in order to get what we want. And so we're capable of making idols out of anything. And all of those idols that we make out of anything in this world are just demigods in service to the one big idol in our lives, which is me, self. Sinners make idols out of anything in order to serve their own selfish, sinful idolatry. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols, Calvin very famously said in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. We idolize money, we idolize material stuff, we idolize our looks, we idolize our reputations, we idolize our health, we idolize wellness, we idolize our feelings, we idolize our happiness, we idolize other people. Anything that we desire more, anything that we feel like we need more, anything that we pay more attention to, anything that we love more than our God is our idol in service to self. And we do it all the time. We turn to idols. And turning to idols is always turning away from God. And whenever sinners do that, It's because they're being ruled by their own sinful desires. And so what results from the idolatry, the the turning to the idols and away from God, what results from it is a cascade of immorality in keeping with the sinful desires that are being fed by the idolatry. All kinds of lawlessness, all kinds of godlessness always follows after the idolatry. And that's what Israel was doing, chasing after these false gods. What about the raisin cakes? 
(laughs) that God mentions there in verse 1. They worshiped false gods and they loved raisin cakes. What's that all about? Scholars are a bit divided. You'll notice the word raisin cakes of the pagans in some translations, but it's not in the Hebrew. That's an interpretation, but it's not in the original text. It just says they loved raisin cakes. Well, some scholars think that that there were raisin cakes involved as a part of the ritual idolatry, the ceremonies of the false worship that the pagan people engaged in. And so it's the same thing to say that they worship the false gods is that they love the raisin cakes because they were involved in the ceremonial worship of the false gods in that way. Well, others point out, I think this is pretty convincing actually, that there are plenty of places in the Old Testament like 2 Samuel 6, Isaiah 16, where raisin cakes were explicitly a part not of the worship of the pagan gods, but of the true God. In the temple, in Jerusalem, during times when His goodness and provision for Israel were being celebrated, the crops were brought in, some victory happened on the battlefield, and a part of the worship to God that expressed gratitude to Him for His goodness and provision was eating raisin cakes because they tasted good. And so they were celebrating goodness that way. So the point would be this, That that's all the people were interested in when they worshipped God, see? When they came together, so they're off chasing after false gods, first of all, because they think the false gods are going to give them more than what the true God gives them. And then they go to the temple to, quote, worship the true God. But the only reason they're there isn't because they love Him. It's just because they love the raisin cakes. You get it? They're not really interested in praising Him, magnifying Him, giving Him thanks, exalting Him for His goodness. That's not why they came to worship. They came because of the raisin cakes. They came because of the tasty snacks. They came because of the experience. I know you know what I'm talking about, right? And I think what God is saying is it's like this. It's like a bride who shows up to her own wedding, but not really because she loves the groom that she's going to marry. She's just there because there's an open bar. I think that's what God's saying, right? Such is the heart of Israel toward their God. They don't love Him. They'll only show up if there's some tasty snack in it for them. Otherwise, they're off whoring after the other gods, see? And plunging themselves neck deep into immorality. That is exactly what was going on in Israel. Even though God had been so kind to them so faithful to them. They wanted more. Their sinful desire was was dominant in their lives. It was ruling them. They were enslaved to it. So they, they turned to these idols. They turned away from their God. And every kind of wickedness then grew like weeds out of that idolatry that they had cultivated in their hearts. This was the sin of Jehu. You remember Jehu from chapter 1? He was the one who caused the bloodbath in the Jezreel Valley in 2 Kings 9 and 10. And so the first son born to Hosea and Gomer was to be named Jezreel because God would revisit that bloodshed upon Israel for their idolatry, remember? Well, Jehu was the one in 2 Kings 9 and 10 who slaughtered tons of people in the Jezreel Valley. And on the one hand, most of the people that he killed were, were bad people like the descendants of the house of Ahab, who was arguably the most wicked king in Israel's history. 
And it was God's vengeance on the house of Ahab that that ended up being accomplished by Jehu, even though Jehu did all that from his own sinful, bloodthirsty motives. But see, what Jehu didn't do was to eradicate the idolatry from Israel after he got rid of the wicked people. He was not careful, 2 Kings 10.31 says, he was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel with all of his heart, and he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, meaning all of the idol worship that had been imported from the pagan nations and that had plagued the nation of Israel for so long. Jehu didn't get rid of the idolatry, and so as the people continued to turn to those idols, they continued to turn away from their God. And the sinful desires and lusts of their hearts gave way more and more and more to every form of wickedness, every form of immorality that we can possibly imagine. Every kind of sexual immorality that you can imagine flourished in Israel, especially as they worshiped the fertility gods of the pagan nations, you can imagine. And at some points in their history, the people of Israel and even the people of Judah down in the southern kingdom, they weren't just sacrificing animals to false gods, they were actually sacrificing human infants to the false gods of the pagans. And all of that rank idolatry and and the grotesque immorality that flowed from it as they turned their backs on God and on His holiness, again, that would infect the land. It would infect Israel in the north. It would infect the southern kingdom. It would infect Jerusalem. It was even festering in the temple in Jerusalem in Ezekiel's day. Well, see, that's how it works. That's what's behind every kind of wickedness and immorality that festers in our world today still. Even the slaughter of millions of human infants here in America, in the land of the free, in the home of the brave. Because people's hearts perpetually churn out idols like factories and they continue to turn away from God. And all that does is fertilize all of the idolatry and immorality of their hearts, and it gets poured out in more and more grotesque fashion. This is the bondage of sin. That's the the word that God's word declares human sinfulness to be. It's slavery that binds and dominates and destroys everything it gets its fingers into. Human lives, families, societies. This is why Paul says in Romans 8 that the whole world is groaning for what? Redemption. Right? To be freed from that bondage of sin and corruption and decay. That's exactly what God reveals here to be at the heart of His divine love. The love of God is redeeming love. And so God says to Hosea that even as he has loved Israel and purposes to redeem Israel, that Hosea is to go and put that love of God on display, verse 1, by buying her, verse 2. Because she's become enslaved by her immorality. And we're not told exactly how. But it's not hard to imagine because very commonly, very typically, prostitutes didn't just work for themselves. 
They were slaves in service to cruel masters who used their, the willing immorality of the, of the woman for their own advantage. So in order to free Gomer from her enslavement, Hosea had to literally go find her and buy her from whoever she was enslaved to. He literally had to pay market value for her. And the price was high. Several hundred liters of barley and 11 ounces of silver. That's what the measures work out to be there. It's interesting, isn't it, that Judas betrayed Jesus for 11 pieces of silver. Well, the point here is that in order to love his adulterous wife of harlotry, when he absolutely and most certainly did not feel like it, Hosea had to buy her out of her slavery to that corruption. And the word for that is to redeem. To redeem. He loved her by redeeming her from her bondage to sin and corruption and shame. So be sure, Christian, You're not pictured here by Hosea. I'm not pictured here by Hosea. Hosea is a picture of Christ who redeems me. Who redeemed, past tense, me. I'm pictured by Gomer. And he redeemed, he bought me, he paid the price for me. From my bondage to sin and idolatry and godlessness and immorality. And he did that. He redeemed me at great, great cost to himself. And he did it in spite of me. There was no loveliness in me that drew him to love me. It was all his divine, unmerited, unconditional redeeming love that that now has drawn me to him. That's how it works. God's love is First and foremost, redeeming love. He pays the price to purchase us out of bondage to sin and corruption and death. And then secondly here, God's love is refining love. He loves us in spite of our unloveliness, but His love is such that He intends to transform us and make us lovely in His sight now that we have been bought with a price and purchased by His own shed blood. So Hosea has followed the pattern of God's own redeeming love towards Israel in in verses 1 and 2 here. Even though his wife is unlovely to him, even though he doesn't feel like loving her, he does, even as the Lord has loved Israel. And he has at great cost to himself gone and bought her, redeemed her out of her bondage. And so, verse 3, Hosea says to his wife, whom he has bought with a price. You must now dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the harlot or belong to another man. And so will I also be to you. Is this not the message of the gospel? Is it not the other side of the coin? For all who have been bought with a price... You shall not let sin reign in your mortal bodies anymore. It cannot stay. The corruption cannot continue. The rebellion cannot remain. 
The moral decay needs to die. Gomer must be faithful to the one who has redeemed her by his unmerited grace and unconditional love. And he promises, right? That he will be faithful to her. So the love of God that does not depend on our loveliness will not leave us in our unloveliness. It transforms us by its power to destroy the strongholds of our fleshly idolatrous desires into people who love Him who has first loved us. This is the gospel according to Hosea. This is why this see this is why God goes to such lengths here in this book to show himself to be in relationship to his own people not not just a king over his subjects he most surely is that but he is so much more God wants to show himself to be more than just a master over his servants he most certainly is that but he is so much more he is a bridegroom He is a husband who doesn't just rule, but who reigns over the hearts of his redeemed bride with divine, purifying, sin-conquering love. Are you tuned into this love of God in your life? First question I always ask myself or anybody else who says to me, I'm really struggling with sin and I keep being tempted and I keep stumbling and I don't know what to do. Are you tuned in to the sanctifying, redeeming love of Jesus more than you're tuned into whatever it is out there that's tempting you? More than you're tuned into yourself and how you feel about whatever it is out there that's tempting you, or how guilty you feel for being tempted or for failing, are you tuned in to the redeeming, purifying, sin-conquering love of God? The one true, eternal, holy, living God is a person. He's not just absolute perfection in His being. He's absolute personality. He's absolute personalness in who He is in distinction from all the other gods of all the pagan nations, right? All those gods are either finite and personal, limited but personal, sinful themselves, corrupt themselves but personal, or the ones that are imagined to be infinite are not personal. Our God is the only one who is both absolute and intimate with us, personal with us as a husband is to a wife. His relationships with his people are not just in terms of authority and power, but every bit as much as those they are in terms of his love. He's the divine husband who loves his bride with everlasting, faithful, redeeming, and refining Love. His love for his own expects and requires and demands, by definition, it demands love for him in return. From the heart, not just outwardly, and and forever, permanently, that we would be his, and not our own and not anybody else's, because that's the way that he loves us. So this is what he's requiring Hosea to portray here. 
Go love this unfaithful, adulterous wife of yours by buying her and purchasing her freedom at your own cost and in spite of her, and then by your self-sacrificing love for her, constrain her now to love you, to turn from her other lovers, and to love you faithfully as a wife. Do you love your God this way? Again, as we saw from chapter 2 last time, Repentance is not optional for sinners who are freely loved by God. And here we see it even more clearly. It is this free, unconditional, redeeming love of God for the unlovely that produces this repentance which marriage to Him requires. God's kindness, Paul says so clearly in Romans 2 and verse 4, God's kindness, and fathom the kind of kindness Paul is talking about there in relationship to all that Jesus did and all that He came to do in redeeming us. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Do any of us In our earthly lives, do any of us want to be married to a spouse who doesn't really love us? Who's just in it for the raisin cakes or the money or whatever they can get from us, but they don't really care about us? And then if they find that they can't get what they want from us, they go and find it somewhere else. As soon as they determine that that person has more to offer than we do. I don't want to be married to a person like that, do you? Neither does God. Marriage, by definition, requires a love and a devotion that is entirely sincere and from the heart and that is permanent. That's what God requires of His redeemed. And that's what He gives by loving us that way first. That's what He is. And so that's what He demands and nothing less. And so by way of Hosea's living parable... He declares she must repent. No more harlotry now that she's been bought with a price. She's got to turn from all the other lovers and turn to her loving, self-sacrificing, redeeming husband. Now remember this. Hosea is here preaching all this, living all this, in sight of everybody in the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century B.C. Remember this, that up until this point in their history, all anyone has known for the last 50 years, was, was a pretty good season of, of prosperity in the northern kingdom, right? The calamity hasn't come yet. There's not even a hint of it on the wind except what Hosea is proclaiming and, and what Amos, as we'll see, will proclaim also in anticipation of, of national disaster. To this point, though, that's just a hint that there's a storm gathering For Israel, but it is gathering. And it is because of their unfaithfulness to God and their rejection of His law and of His word and of His holiness and and of Him. That's why the, the storm is coming. Makes you think of all the obvious parallels, right, to our own situation here in America. Things have been really good, haven't they? Peace and prosperity and freedom and liberty. How much longer do you think this country can expect to enjoy all of that while collectively we're shaking our fist at God and rejecting His law and flouting His holiness and indulging 
in every kind of moral and spiritual harlotry in the most flagrant ways imaginable. The storm is coming. As sure as God is holy, the storm is coming. Here's the thing. In Israel, the storm of God's righteous judgment would consist of this, according to these verses. It would consist in God stripping Israel of all of these idolatrous sources of earthly security that they were putting so much more confidence in than they were putting in their God. They were trusting all of these other things and God was going to take all of that away from them. Verse 4, The children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king, without a prince even, without sacrifice to the idols, without pillars to the to the, to the pagan gods in their temples, without ephod, without household gods. I'm going to take all of it away that you've been depending on so much. So some of those things that he was going to take away, like, like the sacrifices that they rendered to the false gods and the teraphim, right? The little household gods that they kept and enshrined and revered in their homes to try to guarantee their prosperity in this world, their security in this world. Those things were 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 inherently wicked in and of themselves because they were in their existence fundamental violations of the law of God in the second commandment to not make graven images and pay homage to them, worship them. And then he also mentions things like kings and princes. Those weren't inherently wicked things in and of themselves. But the problem, of course, was that Israel had come to rely on those things and depend on those things and stake their security to those things more than to God himself. They were idolizing even things that were good in this world. And so, God, in his redeeming love, was purposing to take all of that away. To strip away all of the things they were depending on instead of depending on Him. Tearing away the pillars of their earthly, worldly security because they put more confidence in all that stuff than in their God. Again, what what portents might that hold for us here as Christians in America? As a nation, which isn't even defined as, as Israel was in the Old Covenant as being in relationship to God like Israel, this covenant that God made with them in Mount Sinai. America doesn't have that arrangement with God. So how long can we assume that His providential kindness is going to prevail as we enjoy the freedoms and the prosperity that, that really are utterly unique in this country, in this age in which we live? How can, how can we expect them to continue at God's, because of God's goodness when, when as a nation we're just thumbing our noses at Him? And thumbing our noses is as nicely as I can say what we're doing to Him from, from the pulpit. We're doing much worse than that as a nation to the, to the living God. Our defiance of His holiness in spite of His kind providence is, is, is absolutely unspeakable. How long can we presume that his kindness will remain? So, in Israel, God said, you're my covenant people, but I'm going to strip you bare of all the things that you're relying on in your proud, self-sufficient, indulgent, luxuriant, idolatrous hearts because you're relying on all that stuff more than you're relying on me. Instead of relying on me. 
But notice here, see, the message here in Hosea is that this God-ordained loss that they're going to go through of these idolatrous sources of security and, and fulfillment would be meant by God as gain for their ultimate good, for their refinement in His great unconditional love. Because taking those, thing, those things from them would, would mean leaving them with nothing but Him. Verse 5. Afterward, after I remove all of the idolatry, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. Listen to the other prophets of God who spoke about the stain of sin that had marred God's people. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 2, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord your God. You get it? Jeremiah is saying, trying to cleanse yourself from the stain of sin won't work ever. It's utterly futile and hopeless. Can't be done. But, Malachi chapter 3, He, God, is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, and He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. He who redeems requires holiness of His redeemed bride, and He alone by that same redeeming love, will refine, will purify. Like a fuller. A fuller is the one who washed. They would shear the sheep and that wool on a sheep is filthy, dirty, greasy, smelly, nasty. And the fuller would be the one who would take a big vat of boiling lye and dip that wool down in and then scrub it and wring it out over and over and over and over until it was white as snow. And that is our lives by the love and the grace of God, just getting scrubbed and wrung out until we reflect His holiness more. Or like a refiner of precious metal, subjecting the metal to the intense inferno of the furnace until all of the dross and impurity came up to the surface to be scraped away so that the only thing left was the pure, shiny, precious metal that the refiner could see his own reflection in. Notice again, without taking too much time to dwell on it, notice here the portents of new covenant fulfillment that God proclaims. In verse 5, by the application of His great unmerited, unconditional, redeeming, refining love, His unfaithful, idolatrous, immoral, depraved people who had been saturated with spiritual harlotry, will be turned from their desire for other lovers and will return to seek the Lord their God and to serve David their king, who's been dead for hundreds of years now. And they will come to fear the Lord. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom and godliness in life, and that will happen in the latter days. That's pretty explicit, actually, in its reference to the new covenant, which says, we are now living in the last days, the book of Hebrews proclaims. These days where people from every tongue and nation who have faith in Jesus, who is David's heir, David's son, and David's Lord, are are raised to new life in Him, given new hearts, filled with God's Spirit. In fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy, we have God's law written on our hearts. In fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, we have been led to and are being led to repentance by God's great kindness and love in fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy. So Christian, you are God's bride, redeemed from your own harlotry, spiritually, by His great sacrificial love. And as his bride, you are being refined now by this love, by his new covenant commitment to wash you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness and to train you. Remember we saw that last week? By his great grace, Titus chapter 2 verse 11, from all unrighteousness to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, godly, upright lives in this present age as we await the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, remember those words, Titus 2, 11 through 14. Write those down, read them, meditate on them. That's what's going on in your life. Even as you struggle, even as there's hard things, even as things are painful, it's God's refinement, right? It's not God's hatred of you. It's not God's punishment of you. It's God's new covenant commitment to you as His bride to cleanse you. So remember these words too from Hebrews chapter 12, whenever the circumstances of your life as the redeemed child of the living God, as the redeemed bride of the heavenly groom, purchased by the high cost of the blood of Jesus, when your circumstances are hard and painful, like the pain by which you were bought by His blood, remember these words. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Hebrews chapter 12, God's treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not his sons. And besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. And for the moment, all the discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12, 7-11, life verses, that's what the pain is all about. It's God's faithful, redeeming commitment to refine you. 
So be confident, again, even as Peter exhorts us all in 1 Peter chapter 4, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, to refine you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. This is our God. This is His great love for us, who were all, all of us, were no less wretched in comparison with His eternal holiness than Gomer the harlot was wretched to her faithful husband, Hosea. So here's the thing. God didn't love us because we were lovely to Him. He loved us in spite of the fact that we were absolutely hideous in our sin. And He continues to love us in spite of the hideous sin that remains in us. And He loves us enough that even though His love doesn't depend on anything good in us, it needs to result in growing good through us. As His grace trains us for righteousness, as His love disciplines us even painfully to turn away from our idols and to our loving Father in order to bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is the divine love of our holy God who loves the most vile sinner in spite of themselves enough to redeem them at great cost to himself. He emptied himself for us. He took the form of a servant for us. He took on human flesh for us. He shed his own blood and died on a cross to redeem us. And this is the great redeeming, refining love of our faithful God that is Resilient love and relentless love. Greater than all our sin. By which He loves us enough to do whatever is necessary so as to present us holy and blameless unto Himself. So trust Him for that today. Look to that love of Christ and let it consume your heart. Interpret the painful refining fires of your life through this lens. It is not God neglecting you or forsaking you or punishing you. It is His commitment to refine you as His bride and make you lovely in His sight. Let's pray to Him today. Our Father and our God, would You help us to learn from these truths, to not just comprehend them, but to trust them and to trust You enough, Father, to interpret every aspect of our lives through the lens of this truth, through the lens of your love, and to live our lives in holy devotion to you who have loved us so much. And so, Father, we love you, and we give you praise for your love for us, and we ask you to continue the work that you have begun in us, even as we sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen.